Good morning, afternoon or evening everyone. My name is Jack Baker and welcome to the first episode of The Plight of the Pangolin. To capture what is a unique moment in the spotlight for one of the species most closely linked to coronavirus and to help explain the troubles this enigmatic creature faces, this mini-series is a celebration and investigation of all things pangolin. If you are coming to this podcast a stranger to the species, do not fret. Before we dive deeper into some of the issues pangolin face, such as trafficking, climate change and its use in cultural practices, today we are starting off with an introduction to the pangolin, somewhat of a who, what and where of the species. Additionally, later in the show we will be talking to the first of our special guests, Jamie Ormiston. I met Jamie while he was teaching about pangolin at the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland's Edinburgh Zoo, and we will be talking to him about raising awareness and also some of the issues he's faced teaching about this species. However, before we get started, since we're all meeting each other for the first time, here is a little bit about me. When I was younger, I grew up with Planet Earth, the Blue Planet, and pretty much every other docu-series I could get my hands on. I learned every word of the Jungle Book and The Lion King, and I dragged my parents to every animal-themed tourist attraction I could find. And so, it was only natural that one day I would want to share this love of nature with the world. Having now delivered education sessions for thousands of people at zoos and aquariums, and having studied conservation, you would have thought I would be running out of steam by now in terms of talking, but that is far from the truth. My one goal in life is to leave the world just that little bit better than I found it. And if that starts with making you fall in love with this strange, enigmatic, charismatic creature, or prompting a discussion about the pangolin between you and your friends or family, then I will have done my job. With all of that said, let's get on to today's topic. What is a pangolin? There are eight species of pangolin found across Asia and Africa. They're the only mammals of the order Pholidota, and interestingly, they are most closely related to the family Carnivora, which contains large predators like wolves and tigers. Pangolins inhabit diverse ecosystems, including tropical forests, savanna woodland, and grasslands, and so, as not to inhibit their ability to thrive, they have adapted to different prey and environmental conditions. For example, some are semi-arboreal, meaning they live in the trees while others rarely consume water. The Temminx ground pangolin and Indian pangolin gain much of their liquids from their foods. Now despite there being eight variations, all share some features. They are the world's only scaly mammal, and when threatened by predators including lions and leopards, all roll into a ball for protection. This has clearly affected their naming as Pholidota comes from the ancient Greek word for scaly, and pangolin is derived from the Malay word penguling, meaning something that rolls up. They have also earned themselves the nickname of scaly anteater, which makes perfect sense given that these animals feast on termites and ants, and a lot of them too. Some pangolin eat as many as 20,000 insects a night, or 70 million a year. To put this in perspective, the giant anteater eats around 35,000 a day, but it weighs upwards of 40 kilograms, whereas most pangolin species do not exceed 12 to 13 kilograms. Because of this diet, pangolin lack teeth, and they have long tongues and sharp claws which they use to extract their prey. These sharp claws are also useful for the creation of the burrows in which the pangolin take refuge. 
It is often in these burrows that pangolin will give birth to their singular or occasionally twin young. And while after around six months this youngster will go its own way, it really is worthwhile googling pictures of pangolin and their young, as the mother will often carry her offspring on her back, making for some very wholesome content. While this act is very cute, it is also very important, as if the mother fails to protect her young, this can have serious consequences. Due to the pangolin's slow reproductive rate and the high number of threats which the species faces, the likelihood is their reproductive rate will be exceeded by their mortality rate, and thus the likelihood is the population will decline. The threat of decline is very concerning, and while they are listed as an Appendix 1 animal in the CITES Treaty, meaning the trade of them is illegal, this does not mean that pangolin are safe. While we will talk to the experts about why these populations are dwindling in the coming episodes, it is worth noting that already two species of pangolin are vulnerable, three are endangered, and three are critically endangered. Again, while we will talk more about this next time, it's important to highlight just why this is so concerning. For one, all pangolin can be classed as ecosystem engineers, meaning they are incredibly influential on their habitat. While you may think that due to their size, megafauna like elephants and giraffe perform these essential ecosystem services, which keep the world running, in regulating insect populations, constructing burrows which affect soil processes, and providing sustenance for species like chimpanzees, pangolin play an essential role. Additionally concerning is the fact that these animals cannot be kept in zoos. I mean, when I first discovered all of this, my first instinct was, why don't we just keep these animals in zoos? This has worked wonders for things like rhino. Surely they'll be safe. However, as I've said, pangolin cannot be kept easily within this environment because of complications regarding feeding and the animals becoming overly stressed. Stopping the possibility of arc-like protection and limiting the awareness-raising effects of organisations of this nature. Before we dive deeper into the value of pangolin and some of the threats the species face, in the coming episode, this actually leads us nicely onto today's interview with Jamie Ormiston from the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland. He is going to tell us a little bit about his work and the challenges he has faced communicating with the public about the pangolin. So without further ado, please enjoy today's interview with Jamie Ormiston. Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. I'm now joined by Jamie Ormison. Last year, the two of us were part of the team which ran the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland Summer School Programme at Edinburgh Zoo. As part of that, Jamie ran a class on wildlife trafficking featuring pangolins. So today he's here to tell us a little bit about the kids' reaction to this enigmatic species. So first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being here. I think it would be helpful for us to establish your background for the listeners. So how did you become interested in conservation, environmental education, that sort of thing? Well, I um, I did a degree in marine biology many, many, many years ago. And sort of during that time, I was doing quite a lot of volunteering and a lot of education volunteering. So maybe some tutoring here and there. I was volunteering for lots of sort of local authority things 
things here and there as well. Nothing really in conservation, though. It was more just getting a, an idea of what education was like, along with uh, doing my degree. When I finished that, I did various jobs and ended up volunteering at Edinburgh Zoo and doing lots of sort of public public engagement, volunteering and that sort of thing. And not long into that, a job came up as the sort of public education officer doing a lot of the, the public talks and the Penguin Parade and that sort of thing. So I very quickly went from volunteering into actually paid work at the zoo. And it was then I kind of really developed quite a good knowledge of conservation issues animals generally and ecology and that sort of thing so it was yeah it was like learning on the job which was really good for me and absolutely loved it but there's only <laughs> there's only so many times you can do a public talk before you get quite bored of it and um, because it's usually the same talk over and over again so from that there was another project at the zoo and um, which was going to primary schools the double-decker bus to teach them about native species so it's moving away from the the exciting and exotic things that like tigers that people get very excited about um, and into things that people didn't really know about. So beavers and, and wild cats and, and mini beasts. And we traveled all over Scotland and visited. Well, when I worked there, it was over 330 schools, I think it was, in a couple of years from Shetland and Lewis and Harris all the way through the Highlands and Argyll and down to the borders and, and that sort of thing. And during that time, it was, yeah, it was thinking about conservation projects at home, but also what was the, the sort of global impact of that and and how what we do here in Scotland has an impact across the world. Um, and the, the fact that we can we can travel pretty much anywhere in the world, or we used to be able to travel pretty much anywhere in the world, means that wherever we go, we have we leave we leave something behind and we sometimes take something away and it causes huge issues across the planet. So that's where that sort of passion and drive came from to do something and to, to make people think and to, to make changes to their to everyday life. Hmm. That's kind of where my interest was as well. When I started kind of, I started working at an aquarium and then moved to the zoo because I kind of like this idea of telling people that they can make a difference no matter where they are, whether that be to local species or whether that be to things halfway across the world from them. I, don't th I think a lot of people don't realise that the things that they do, whether that be drop litter or whether that be things to do with their carbon footprint, affect everything in the world sometimes. I think they think very locally sometimes. And so when you tell them, oh, if you drop a bit of litter, that ends up in a food chain somewhere in the ocean that can end up halfway across the world, it, it can be quite a good way to, yeah. to kind of grip them and, and actually get a lot of engagement. Yeah. Um, I think moving on from from there, where we met was working with the the summer school, yeah. and so I wondered if you could kind of explain that program and and what age group you kind of worked with and and what sort of program you you had with set up for for them. Yeah, so summer school is yeah this program that's amazing at Edinburgh Zoo where kind of everything that the education officers do throughout the year is brought together and condensed down into week-long sort of summer schools that are over four weeks so each child will come in for a week and then it'll be a, a new set of children the following week, a new set of children the following week after that and yeah it's a bit of a mix of all the stuff that the zoo has been doing for years and years and years has great knowledge of conservation projects that RZSS do, but also other organisations do. And they combine that with the knowledge and experience of teachers from across Scotland that come and become summer school teachers for uh, for that four weeks. Um, so it's a really exciting programme. And it's 
open to anybody, but you'll tend to find it's an interesting mix where you get a lot of kids that come year after year after year. Their parents might be um, members and the kids have kind of grown up with summer schools. So some summer school teachers who come year after year will remember them when they were in primary two and then, then leaving in uh, S1. And uh, it's quite nice uh, to see them sort of grow up through summer school. Uh, but then it is open to anybody. So um, there are tickets available for less well-off families so they can come and uh, they get to experience um, something that is usually quite quite expensive and difficult to get into because the tickets sell out so so quickly. So each summer school teacher gets there, given their class, and they can plan for that class and you plan a week long of activities and then you multiply that by, by four. And it's really up to the summer school teacher what is covered during that time. There'll be a rough theme. Um, so it might be rainforests, it might be Australia, it might be um, native species. And that's kind of your, you get the bones of it and then you can sort of pack it out with whatever you want and whatever resources you have around you. Because that's another thing about um, the zoos. There's so many great resources uh, to hand, be it skulls or skins or even things from tribes in, in the jungle. And you've got all these things to hand and you, you, you kind of work in with that stuff to, to create these really exciting and engaging lessons. Um, so I had the primary six sevens, um, which is a, a group that I've worked with quite a lot in the past. I've done summer school a couple of times in the past, but also as an education officer, it works quite a lot with, with six sevens. And they're an interesting, an interesting age group because if they have been through summer school for those years before that, then they kind of know a lot already, but then you're matching that up with kids who maybe know nothing about conservation. So it's a really difficult balance to get in order to engage those who don't know much, but not dumb it down too much that the ones that do know a lot um, are missing out on some of that activity. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a um, a real challenge for for us as um, summer school teachers to, to get that balance. But what's great is because you've got the zoo there, you can go out and see some animals and as soon as you see some animals it engages all the children and it creates questions and uh, queries and and kids want to know more and you might have planned a whole day of uh, talk about tigers but you've gone out and you've seen um, a gibbon swinging around and suddenly you're talking about how gibbons swinging around and then your day has changed to um, it's all about gibbons and um, so <laughs> that's another um, another challenge for uh, being a, a summer school teacher um, with that age group yeah what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that summed it up perfectly, actually, because I just kind of was wondering about the process of setting that up and, and what group you'd been working with. I think you actually touched on quite a few ideas there that we'll, we'll come back to. Just to kind of frame it for the listeners, our theme last year was Asia, and so Asian animals. So in the zoo, we focused on species like rhinos, tigers, they have giant pandas. So we were kind of focusing on those types of things. But obviously, when you think about Asia and you think about some of the conservation issues that are taking place within that continent, one of the major ones is, of course, pangolins and trafficking. And so I, as I kind of understand, you taught a lesson on trafficking with a section, of course, on the pangolin. I was wondering, before you kind of planned that lesson, what your awareness was of of the issues surrounding pangolin and, and that species was it something you were relatively new to going into the summer school or did you have a lot of background on that 
I had quite a bit of background on that. It's one of the reasons why I chose air trafficking because it's something that as an education officer at Zoo, we, we speak about quite a lot. Just trafficking generally, and um, when you're doing the public talks, we unfortunately don't have pangolins at Edinburgh Zoo, but the Indian one-horned rhino, you generally spend a lot of time talking about trafficking of wildlife. The same with the gibbons. There's loads of stories with the, with the animals at the zoo, things like the the female gibbon was uh, found in a in a marketplace, and she was rescued and taken to London Zoo, and then uh, brought up to Edinburgh, and is part of the breeding program now. And the same with the uh, the sun bears; they were found as pets, and so it's really it's really easy to talk about things like that in the zoo. And the more you talk about it, the more you want to learn about what else is happening out there. And it just seemed like a really natural thing to <laughs> what I like to do when I'm, I'm preparing lessons is you. you bring the kids right up and you get them really excited about an animal that they absolutely love but then to really drive home a message you want to then bring them back to reality a little bit and talk about something that they have no idea about and without getting without getting too graphic but really driving home a message that will then stay with them for for a long time and i think that's just natural when you're talking about rhinos and so we, during that lesson, we, we spoke about rhinos, um, elephant, and and pangolin as well. Yeah, I I kind of would do a, a similar thing where obviously dealing with some of the younger kids, it was it was easier to go out when and talk about the animals they could see at the zoo. So we would go out and see things like the rhino, and then we would come back to the classroom and kind of talk a little bit about it. And then you would hold up something, whether it be a, a horn or maybe a a foot that been turned into a plant pot or something ridiculous and quite horrifying which obviously you don't want to scare them or upset them but I think it does really drive home the point sometimes is when they think these are the animals we love how could people possibly do that to them it's uh it's a a very good way to kind of drive home those messages yeah obviously when you're tackling these issues though especially when as we've talked about there are kids there that know a lot about conservation because they come every year and there's some kids that maybe maybe don't I was wondering what the kids' awareness was like of species like pangolin. Were there kids there that knew what pangolin were, or were they all kind of new to the, the subject? That's interesting. If you'd asked me uh, maybe two or three years ago if the kids knew what a pangolin was, then I would have said, absolutely not. Hmm. And I'd, I'd taught similar lessons where the children had no idea what I was talking about and what this alien-looking thing was. But I think within the last year, maybe two years, pangolins have definitely come to the front and have been on the TV or on film. So they're in Jungle Book, the new the remake of Jungle Book. I feel like they, they do pop up a, a lot more now and there's a lot more awareness. So actually going into that lesson, I was kind of half expecting them to have no idea what we we're talking about, but um, quite a lot of them had, um, had some knowledge of it already. They didn't know much about the, the scales and the taking of scales and why scales were taken and um, and that sort of thing. But they, the majority of them would say had seen or heard the word uh, pangolin and knew there was this sort of scaly creature, which was um, a bit weird looking. That's quite encouraging, I think, because a lot of the time, certainly when I talk to adults, they don't know what a pangolin is. So it's interesting now that the kids perhaps have more of an awareness. I guess seeing them in the Jungle Book and kind of 
getting this awareness will hopefully mean that in the future we will have a generation that is a lot more aware of these issues um opposed to when i talk to adults now and some of them even experts i've spoken to kind of in preparation for this podcast have a very limited awareness of pangolin which mm-hmm. is perhaps going to be more challenging i guess now to to change than the view of the the kids yeah. um did you find there was challenges associated with educating the kids on something that they they couldn't see or did they manage to because when you can go out and see a rhino it's very easy that is a rhino you know what what a rhino is you understand how it moves what it does was there difficulties associated with educating the kids on something they couldn't go out into the zoo and see I would say so. Um, what's great is, as I was as said before, there's lots of uh, biofacts and lots of stuff that you can pick up and, and look at. And it's all it's all very old due to things like the illegal wildlife trade, where you can no longer really get your hands on a stuffed animal to, to have on, on display. So the, the zoo, which is over 100 years old now, has lots of different specimens to hand. And uh, interestingly, they do have uh, um, a stuffed pangolin but it's it's so old it's stuffed in the wrong way it's not got the right stance it's kind of down on all fours even though the front legs are really quite short and it doesn't really look right it's kind of they want it to be walking a bit like a a mongoose or something like that when obviously in reality they're kind of up on their back legs and um, shuffle along kind of like a, a beaver carrying um carrying mud so it, it was handy to actually to have something like that because it, it, it led you down so many um, so, that, so many avenues where you could show them what this thing looked like and what it felt like as well. Like you, you talk about scales, but what do scales really feel like? We have snakes in the, in the zoo and the kids get to feel the snakes at certain points and you can compare reptile scales to, to these weird mammal scales. You can, um, yeah, so you, you can get really tactile and, and touch those things, uh, but it takes you down the route of how much we've learned about species like that mm. in the when this uh, specimen was taken maybe 40 or 50 years ago however long it was that's the way they thought that these things moved was down on all fours but the more that we study these things the more we realize that our views of this are um, are completely wrong so even adults get things wrong and i think that's the the great thing about something like that is you can show science in action and the amount that we've learned over the last 50 years um, about lots of different animals and I think kids can relate to that they, there's no need to, to know it all and that's the the wonder of science and getting into science is you can learn stuff and actually teach people about stuff and and it's kind of that, that cycle um, going around but yeah definitely is it's difficult to to talk about something like that when there's no personality behind it which you don't have from a from a stuffed animal. When you go out to the zoo and you've got baby rhinos running around, or you've got um, big fluffy um, sun bears lazing around, or pulling apart uh, tree branches and that sort of thing, there's a personality behind it. So you can get kids to um, engage a little bit more and uh, relate to the to these animals. Whereas when it's something that's stuffed and not moving, it's um, it's, it's quite difficult. And that's where the the wonder of technology you can um, you've got. Loads of videos online of, of pangolins moving and um, you can kind of relate that way and going back to the Jungle Book, they see a personality within within that animal. And if, if that's all it is, if that's that fake sort of Hollywood personality, then I think that's enough for them to actually connect with that thing and um, start thinking about it a little bit differently. Mm. 
I appreciate that a lot because it's kind of the while you don't want to have to humanize things to make them matter to people it can be quite a useful way to do it and even I think sometimes what's amazing with the kids is that when you were talking about the questions the sort of scientific questions and things that we've learned about in the last 50 years I think kids actually sometimes pose sometimes what may seem on a base level to be very silly questions but then when you think about it you can and kind of reflect on it and try to answer them you realize they're actually touching on these ideas that are actually very deep and complicated and interesting so if you kind of give them the time and listen and kind of help them to develop these ideas they, it can be be very useful just kind of talking about the zoo and the education about species that that aren't there i wondered what your opinion was should zoos try and teach about these things that they can't necessarily exhibit easily or should organisations of that nature kind of focus more on the the local? I think there's there's definitely room for both. I think the, the wonderful thing about zoos is that they're doing so much work without support from, from any government or anything like that. It's all from people coming in, visiting the zoo, or um, paying for memberships, or leaving legacy um, donations um, behind. And that that feeds into all sorts of conservation. So the conservation um, out in the wild or conservation within the zoos. So if you have um, something like, um, a good example would be the, the sun bears. Um, so the two sun bears were rescued from somebody's back garden in Cambodia and they were then um, they're rescued by Free the Bear. So that's one part of that conservation effort and they were taken from the wild by somebody sold illegally um, in the legal pet trade and kept and then they were then rescued by Free the Bear and the money money was donated to Free the Bear to continue their education work so they are now in Cambodia they're doing their education work and um, whilst the bears have now left and come over to um, come over to Scotland and um, so in that journey leads us to sort of more conservation so the two boys that they had at the zoo and one of those boys left and went to, I think it was Germany, perhaps. Um, another boy stayed. The boy who went off to a different zoo um, has fathered um, a cub. And the one in Edinburgh, um, I don't think they fathered any cubs. He's fathered any cubs yet, but they are part of the, the breeding program. So you've gone from sort of conservation and education in the wild to conservation and education in Edinburgh, um, actually preserving that species uh, within the zoo environment and creating a population of bears that, has, that is as healthy and strong as, as possible. You're not just mixing random bears from random zoos. There's a stud bookkeeper who's looking after that and making sure that um, that is, yeah, you're matching up the, the healthiest bears and the most gen genetically um, diverse bears as well. Which then leads on to education within Edinburgh. So um, with summer school, you're taking kids up there and talking about um, talking about those bears and what they went through, but also talking about things like the the breeding program and and that sort of thing within within Edinburgh. So I think to to sort of remove yourself or for a zoo in Edinburgh or a zoo in Scotland to to remove itself from that would be it'd be detrimental to the the species as a whole being part of the IASA, the European Association of Zoos and Aquarium, like all that effort that goes into preserving a species within the zoo actually benefits species 
out in the wild because of education, uh, research and, um, and conservation. So zoos definitely have a place. And I think in the past, obviously, zoos were cages for animals to entertain Victorians um, when they were, they were first set up. And a lot of people still have that view of, of zoos. And don't get me wrong, there are some zoos around the world that are, are still like that. But the zoos that are not like that are actually doing a huge amount of work for, for conservation across the planet and for education in Scotland and education um, across the across the world as well. And the more that we we have these things and the more that we have these stories, we're removing the bears from a poor situation, putting them into a better situation, but we're telling that story to to people who who maybe want to make a difference whenever whenever they're older. They you're maybe inspiring the the next generation to go out and uh, actually make make some changes. And do things that some people never thought of um, as far as conservation goes and use technology to to make changes that we'd never even dreamed of 10 years ago or even even now um, we just don't know where conservation will go it's because we have these places and um, we have these things at our disposal to to inspire those um, people who who will eventually save the world hopefully that is uh, that's an excellent way of summing it up actually i think we have very similar views on on zoos and that kind of thing because I think yeah a lot of people immediately well they'll see things like I don't know Tiger King was recently published and went viral around the world and kind of this massive thing and I think a lot of people see that and think oh all zoos like must be like that but but when you look at it in reality not every zoo is based on a strange murder plot that is kind of um totally ridiculous and bizarre some of them <laughs> most of them I would hope are actually genuinely interested in conservation yeah. and kind of making this world better I think that kind of leads me nicely onto my my final question for you which was if you could kind of speak directly to the listeners today almost as if you were kind of still standing in that summer school classroom delivering the the lesson on pangolins what would your kind of takeaway for them there then be what would your message be for them I think if you're if you're interested in preserving any species or helping any species, but especially something like a, a pangolin, where um, information isn't just there on your news feeds or your Twitter feed or or however you get your information, then make an effort to find out more. Do some research. Educate yourself, and then you'll be able to educate others. And you, as soon as you take a step, dip your toe into that um, that water, then you'll begin to unravel all these other mysteries around other animals that are, are suffering because of, of similar, um, similar things. Um, so it's, I think it's really important that, yeah, you just, for any anything actually, ask the questions. Um, something I always, always tell children whenever I'm teaching them is um, don't just believe me. (laughs) No point in me telling you something. You just going, yep. Okay. I'll believe that. Like question everything, anything that you come across in your everyday, just question it. Why is, why is that happening? And I think that's especially important for, for conservation. Why is it happening? Where is it happening? How can I stop that from happening? what's actually happening in my country that's contributing to that. If we, if we think about exotic species and 
we mentioned at the beginning about being able to, to travel the world and, and see these things and you go to go to market and you want to buy your, your pal a wee, a wee present to take home like just be careful about what you're actually buying and where you're buying it from and what your impact is whenever you you go away somewhere and how you can reduce that impact and that was across the board how do you reduce your your overall impact um on anything and um how do you learn more about that stuff so i think that's the main takeaway from from anything but in particular conservation and uh, especially pangolins perfect um, that is, I think, an excellent message to, to leave off with. So thank you very much for your time today. No problem. Thank you. Welcome back. Having introduced the pangolin and heard from Jamie about his work with the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, this really has been a jam-packed episode. However, it has given us a lot to think about. What are the threats facing pangolin? What challenges do those working to save pangolin have to overcome? And how can we help both the pangolin and the researchers? We have done a little bit to answer each of these questions today. We have seen the threats facing the pangolin are diverse. We've seen the challenges that arise when talking about a species that is very enigmatic. And we have learned that we must question our own actions to ensure the protection of this incredible species. We will continue to explore these themes throughout the coming episodes. However, all that remains for today is to wrap up the show. I would like to say a massive thank you to Jamie for his time and to all of you for tuning in. On the next episode, we are going to be joined by Dr. Morgan Hotflash, who will be telling us more about ecosystem services and the value of pangolin, as well as a little bit about his work with the Namibia University of Science and Technology. For now though, until next time, thank you so much for listening.